Welcome back. I'm glad you came back for round two. We are going to continue right where we left off after Tommy asked about what the nature of anxiety, how do you define it, so on and so forth. Enjoy. That's a great question. I'll give you sort of the the brief version. There are two ways to look at it. There's anxiety as a quote-unquote diagnosis. And that's something that I try not to focus on because there's certain right. diagnostic criteria, you know, check off X, 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 X. And then, okay, now we can give you this lovely label of some certain anxiety disorder. And that's a whole nother conversation of why there are diagnoses and what kind of purpose they serve. And that's, so that's just that criteria of being able to have some sort of diagnosis. And then there's just the experience of anxiety. And that really varies there's very pervasive, all-encompassing anxieties. There's specific phobias. There's specific themes. So you can have social anxiety. Technically, OCD is not considered an anxiety disorder, but people feel anxious with OCD, and that can be very specific. I could have general anxiety. I can have panic. Imagine anxiety as like the worst family reunion you can imagine and all the different variations of anxiety are connected somehow. And again, not to oversimplify anxiety, a big chunk of anxiety boils down to at its root root core is me as an individual having a really hard time to be able to handle and to tolerate not knowing, uncertainty, not being in control. It's a little bit of an oversimplification, so I don't want people out there to think that I'm being disrespectful to the different anxiety experiences, but at a root, that's a big chunk of it. So take social anxiety. There's the uncertainty of me not knowing how I'm being presented to other people, what other people are thinking. There's this risk. It feels risky. I don't know what's going to happen. There's general anxiety about all sorts of different things of what if this and what if that and this could be and oh no and if I don't do well on this test, what's going to happen next? And so that's like a pervasive general discomfort with not knowing. And then you can have specific phobias in different situations. Uh, Well, if I get on a plane, what might happen? And there's 20 different things that I could be thinking about or experiencing of going on a plane of what might happen. It's not just, well, the plane might go down. I can give you 10 other examples of what people are really anxious about when they get on a plane. So there's so many variations, but I think one of the threads that pulls through different anxieties is this really low tolerance to be able to handle the risk, quote unquote, and the uncertainty that comes along with life, because life is full of uncertainty and risk. I don't know if that fully answers your question, but it gives you a little taste on how I perceive what anxiety is. That's the most intellectualized I've ever heard it put. I feel anxiety. It just, it came out of social. Nobody told me that. Nobody was like, oh, brother, you're anxious. It came out of somewhere, like a TV show, radio, something told me that. And I was like, oh yeah, that's what I'm feeling. And I didn't, I've never known like symptoms or like the uncertainty of the unknown. So like being scared of the unknown, that was probably... I, I understand what you're saying. It's a generalized version of it. However, before I go on stage, no matter what capacity, I mean, I'm exterior. I'm like, I live for this. And then the interior, there's a large do, 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 scary heartbeat. Oh my God, I could mess this up thing. Like all it takes is five jokes not to work and it sucks. Oh my God. Like there is definitely an amount of fear Everybody tells me this, all the best, all the greatest guys that I bumped elbow with, like that's never going to go away. And when it goes away, that's when you should quit. 
So I do keep that in mind where it's like they deal with it all the time too. So I can't, I'm not better than them. Is there a way to like man, not is there a way to manage? Is this something that I'm just going to manage the rest of my life and deal with it and utilize it? And that's pretty much it. So in a way, in a way, it keeps you honest. So everyone listening, welcome to our session between Tommy and Shmuel. We're going to attack anxiety right now. The one thing that I can throw at you is, is that anxiety is something that's both essential, but also could be unhelpful. So like those vets are saying, to have zero anxiety, that's really not good for us. It's a survival instinct, right? So if I didn't have any anxiety about, I don't know, crossing a four-way highway, then that's not going to really work out very well. <laughs> we, need it, we need it to survive. At the same time, if it owns us, then we're not going to be able to move. So one, I think, trap or mistake that some people fall into when it comes to trying to handle anxiety is to try to get to the point where, hey, there's nothing to be anxious about. You know how people say, oh, don't worry, man. And like, that's like the biggest piece of garbage that you know, is ever given to people. Oh, yo, why didn't I think of that? You know, now that you said not to worry, great. Now, thank you. <laughs> now I feel better. It's all over. Thank you. I, you know, I was wondering what I should, now you said, don't worry. Great. Now I'm not going to worry. Beautiful. It doesn't work. You can't shut it off. But what happens is, is that people get sucked into this tug of war of, well, here's this reason why I don't really need to worry. Here's this reason why I don't need to worry. And maybe it helps briefly, but then you know what? The what if comes back. Well, maybe this, but maybe that, then maybe this. So it's this back and forth, tug of war, tug of war, tug of war, tug of war. And for lots of anxiety, the goal is if you're getting on stage, which by the way, is very impressive to be able to get on stage with all that. And that reminds me of one of the definitions of bravery is not not being afraid. It's doing things even though I'm ready to pee my pants. That's the definition of being brave. So it's impressive to be able to get on stage while you're feeling that. But I think the tweak might be, well, I don't have to get to the point where there's nothing to worry about. You know what? The reality is maybe it will bomb. Do I think that I can handle it if it bombs? Yeah, because I've handled that before. So I don't have to get rid of that possibility in order to move forward. It's almost like telling the anxiety, hey, come along for the ride. Oh, it's possible that I'm going to bomb? Yes. Is it possible that I'm going to be booed off stage? It's possible people are going to throw things at me and it's possible I'm going to be blackballed from you know, touring around the country? I guess it's possible. I'm not going to fight with you on that anxiety. So that's maybe the one tweak of it's changing a little bit the relationship that I have with some of those thoughts. And that takes some practice. And the more you do it, the more you can actually tolerate it. Because if we get stuck in, well, I have to completely push it away, then even if I do manage to push it away for a brief moment, it's five minutes later, it's going to come back because the possibility is still there. There's no amount of answers or reassurance or people telling you that everything's going to be okay. That's going to be absolute because there is no absolute. So that would be like the one tweak maybe that would help. No, everything that you just said was trippy as hell, okay? I've done a lot of psychedelics. I, I don't think that's the answer for people to do that. I don't recommend that for people. Just, I happen to, for me, uh, uh-huh, spent some journeys in the woods. However, to have it intellectualized the way that you just put it was just, oh man, that was crazy. That is a good, having a different relationship with your anxiety or whatever, yeah, that is such a good way to utilize it. Like, don't argue, don't try to, that's like dealing with a bad trip. It's like, you don't want to fight the trip, man. It's going to take you down. So just vibe with it. And like, yeah, you're maybe, man, that is a totally, thank you for saying that. I've never had anyone put it like that. And I don't like to read that much. So that was really, that was really nice of you. 
You're welcome. I'm glad I saved you a uh, book's worth of reading. <laughs> it's almost like the way I the way I picture it, it's almost like if you unfortunately we're in a very, very polarized society right now. And so imagine if you got into a conversation with someone who had different values or different views than you. It's very uncommon that you can actually have a dialogue where they're gonna listen and then you're gonna listen and they're gonna listen and you're gonna listen. You know, sometimes when you meet someone, you know within just a couple of seconds that there's no talking to this person. There's no dialogue. They're not gonna listen to anything you're saying. And that's how I see anxiety. There is no amount of debate or rationale or logic that anxiety all of a sudden is gonna be like, oh, you said that? Oh, okay, now I'm gonna leave you alone. There's no amount of that. It's that person who's never going to change their mind, never going to change their opinion. They're not really interested in listening, even if they say that they are, and that's it. So you can spend your time spinning your wheels trying to change their minds, or you can just realize that this is not a person who's interested in a dialogue. That's what anxiety is. Trippy. That is awesome way to put it. And I know a billion people that you're talking about. It's one of my least favorite things ever. When somebody calls you with a mission and they're like, hey, man, how you doing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyways, and then it's like, all right, man, thanks for doing this. This is why I don't answer phone calls. You got to text me first. That's my rule. I hate that, dude. It's the worst. Now, speaking of trippy, I actually wanted to ask you, I'm not interested in you, you know, calling anyone out, but speaking of trippy, I'm curious in the comedy world, and I'm sure it's not unique necessarily to the comedy world. So whether it's being anxious to get on stage or whether it's dealing with rejection, you know, not getting a gig or jokes not going well, how do you find that comics like deal with that? So speaking of trippy, what's the prevalence, I guess, of people using substances? We'll we'll put in one big bucket of substances to manage that, whether it's to get on or whether it's to deal with, you know, the negative experiences. Because I've done psychedelics, I've done research. As I've gotten older, I'm like pretty hesitant to put stuff in my body. And I, I have to do a little bit of research for me personally. I think more and more people are becoming that. The like younger people, as they, when they were younger, they were just putting stuff in their body. So like when I say that, alcohol is going to murder inhibitions. So taking a shot, drinking a beer, having a couple beers or whatever is your comics most likely vice in terms of doing it before they get on stage to the point where I've gotten contracts, not because of things that I've done, but I get like from a new place that I work, I'll get a contract that says not only is there no free alcohol, but you can't drink until the show's over because you get booked for two shows. You're supposed to do two hours that one night. If you get slaughtered, drunk in the first hour it's like dude that second set is gonna be a freaky set man and some guys blow it for the rest of us because there's other guys who can hold their booze a lot better than some so that's a thing but as far as psychedelics and weed goes i mean i've only been on stage on mushrooms a couple times i've been on stage on lsd once and i mean i was in for a, a journey i do not recommend anybody does that probably two of the most terrifying experiences of my life i could feel people like that I, I don't know you can it's don't do it there's too many people in the audience you have to like feel their energies man so those are bad drugs to take but i smoke i live in california this is legal don't judge me baby uh i smoke weed like a tent of in the middle east full of hookah guys i i go down on that i i don't i've been smoking weed since i was like you know a teenager probably way too long of a time 
but the damage is done at this point and now it's just a part of my life if i went up on stage not smoking weed i'm just not i'm not doing i do that anyway i do I'm all the time smoking weed so it's like what the I, I so that for me personally but i know guys who smoke a little bit of weed go up on stage and they're like uh, uh, what's a joke man and they totally they don't know what the hell they're doing anymore so everybody's different but alcohol i would say is probably the easiest one because you can control it you take a shot and then like that's it you don't need to do more and then you know your next show if you want to take a shot okay that's cool too and beers you know beers aren't that big of a deal you have one beer okay the real problem is when you have people after the show that are trying to get you hammered drunk and do whatever the hell they want you to do i've learned to avoid that now before I got wrapped up into it because they're like your buddies, your pals or whatever. Then it's 3 a.m. and you're in some weird van doing cocaine off. It's not a good environment. I don't know. Is that too dirty? Sorry. <laughs> we'll, see. we'll see. We'll see after. So, and I'm really, I'm actually really, I'm just curious again from my perspective as a, you know, in the mental health world, I'm curious whether maybe they had a predisposition to it or because of the profession, how many actually develop you know, you say that alcohol is easy and it is easy. Problem is at a certain point, it doesn't become easy to only take that one shot. And I'm just curious how many people, because of that sort of the lifestyle or the strategies that they've sort of gotten used to, how many then develop a problem with alcohol or, you know, or something else? I know more comics that don't drink intentionally than do. I know way more comics that are former, they'll tell you about it, they'll make jokes about it, but They'll smoke weed, but I like in, per, in recreation use, I don't know about stage use, but for the most part, I would say the majority of comics don't drink to excession, not only pre or post, but like a lot of them just straight up quit because alcohol isn't like one that, I mean, there's not a lot of benefit from it. Mentally, there are an argument for drugs to bring mental benefit, you know, whatever, however you want to quantify that. But alcohol, there's like a lot of negative to it. And it doesn't, it sucks the next day. You have to like alcohol to be drinking it. I like whiskey. So when I drink whiskey, it's because I like it. It's not because I'm trying to get drunk to feel good, man. So I, I know more comics that are in that vibe because they take comedy dead serious. And if you don't take it serious, it can bite you in the ass and you look like a, a fool for a lot of guys what I imagine their motivation is it's not the crowd it's their peers we respect each other's opinion of one another and we book each other we're the guys that gets each other gigs because it's recommendations and stuff like that so if the word on the street is that you're boozed up everywhere you go you're not going to work and a lot of guys take that dead serious. This is how they put food on their table. So they don't want that word out there on them. And then they quit alcohol. They lose 20 pounds. They feel better. And they're like, dude, I'm not going to drink anymore. Screw that. So then they revamp their whole life. I know more guys like that than guys who are showing up hammered everywhere they go. Because you got to drive. And the second you get a DUI, boom, you're done. And we drive at night at like two o'clock at night. That's who cops stop. I've been arrested. Uh, I'm not afraid to say it. I I've been arrested and it's, I've never been arrested for drinking and driving. And I'm glad that I haven't because I've known friends that go down for DUIs and that sucks. Those guys, their life is ruined for like two years. And comics realize that we have to drive. Like you're not famous enough at that point. I mean, I'm, I'm in the middle. I'm barely above ground. You know what I mean? Like when people show up to see my show, they're not showing up to see Tommy. They're showing up to see a comedian. It's a different vibe. So like I, if I ruin my life over a DUI, it's not worth my career. So I think most people have that mentality. That's insightful. And it's interesting, the relationship you describing the relationship between you and your colleagues. And again, this is something I, I think is also related, relatable to other people's that on one hand, your competition, on the other hand, 
you're also supporting each other by connecting them and helping them get gigs and they're helping you get gigs and things like that. Can you talk a little bit more about that, the two sides of that relationship? I hate anybody that quantifies art into competition. I'm not a fan of that. I quit competitions. The last competition I did is the last competition I did. Like I, that, that's forever going to be that. I'm not doing TV competitions. I'm not doing none of that. I don't need somebody to tell me how funny I am. I've done it enough. I've done it to enough people. I know how that works. I know what that means. I know what it means to be funny. And that is hard. And I'm not about to let some producer moron who's never touched a stage in his life even gratify himself with an opinion about my act. So I hate competition as far as art goes, period, music, all that encompass. So when you stop looking at life as a competition, like I, my neighbor's got that boat, I got to get a boat, then shut up. Stop that. What do you want out of life? What's your goals, man? Then your peers, the guys you work with, stop being competition and they become your allies in war, which is who they are. We are all fighting against that audience. Our job is to make them laugh. And every night we're fighting them. If we are fighting against each other too, how, who do we got? Who can I talk to about this? I can't talk to you all the time. This podcast can't last forever. I can't get mental health things for you all the time. I got to get it from my allies in war, my generals, my superiors, the guys I look up to that take us into battle, who've taken me across the country. I, mean, I know I'm, I'm blowing this way out more than it needs to, but just to get metaphorical a little bit, like it's, you have to rely on your buddies. And these are the closest thing you have to people who can understand what you're going through in life. And if you can't reach across the table and connect with them genuinely, you're shooting yourself in the foot, my man. You got to be good to the, your colleagues and your peers and stuff. So the competitive level is this. You want to be the funniest guy in the room. That's the underlying artistic competition that you would say. Success isn't a part of that. So like when you start looking at a guy who's like, oh, he's getting gigs, I'm not getting gigs, that's a problem. But if you're going into a room and going, I want to be on my top notch game because everybody else in this room is on their top notch game, that's healthy competition. I don't think Michael Jordan was trying to win games to win money. You could tell by the amount of money that he was getting paid because it wasn't a lot until that last little bit. I think he wanted to win. And if you're not coming in there with that instinct, like I want to be as funny as I could possibly be be not funnier than the guy next to me. I want to be as funny as I could be. That's when your peers start becoming your allies in arms for sure. I think that's a very valuable lesson for life in that squeezing every drop of my ability out of me, not squeezing every drop out of me in comparison to the next guy or the right. next girl. It's, and that's, that's tremendous. If you can get to that point, you'll just be so much happier in life because it's all what's in your control, not what's not in your control. And that ties back to anxiety. So putting all my energy and my brain space and my time into what I could control, I can control how much I prepare how much I practice, how much research I do, and how much I go over my material to really get it to the best that I can get it. And that's it. I can't control what the response is going to be. I can't control what everyone thinks about it. So I really, really like that. My boy, yeah. Justin Lawson, right before I was, it was a big, big deal audition. It was a Comedy Central thing. They were coming down and filming people in Orlando back in the day. And I was getting ready to go on. And I was like, I was looking at my buddy, Justin uh, Lawson, great guy, great comic, blowing up right now. He's all over the place. He was like, bro, why are you nervous? I seen you, you're dope. You've done this so many times. You have no reason to be nervous right now. And him saying that, bringing the realization of like how much preparation I brought to the table. It's like, it's silly. Yes, be excited. Yes, have that, you know, grit but don't sabotage yourself and i think you you nailed that on the head yeah well i'm gonna give you like a two-part question now sure as a comic and i think in other professions you almost get labeled as you know you're a comedian you're a funny guy so is it ever a challenge 
to not have that label. So when you're off stage, are you always looked at, oh, well, Tommy's a funny guy. So there's like this expectation. You walk into a room, you walk into dinner, you walk into a party, like there's this expectation and you want to be able to just turn it off. I just, I don't want to have to perform all the time. And the second part of the question is related, but not related, is how do you see comics as having different personas on the stage and off the stage? It reminds me of a show that I'm just curious your thoughts about in general is Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, Mm -hmm. which there are definitely parts of that that I really like, but one of the characters has a very, very, I forgot her name. It's uh, Jane, I forgot her name, but her competition, her nemesis has a drastically different persona. She has a stage persona and the people don't even know what her personal persona is. So I'm curious how people are different. They're on stage and then they have personal lives and some of them maybe really struggle in their personal lives because they're so committed to that on stage. And thankfully you've managed to have a solid personal life and relationships. And I'm sure some of them struggle with some personal relationships because they're so committed to, you know, being successful on stage. So it's really those two parts, being able to turn it off and then the persona on and off stage. Okay. So turning it on and off, you said label of being funny. Best label ever. Label me that anytime, baby. Let's go. You want to label me the funny man? I love that. When I was in high school, I got the wittiest kid and you know, uh, whatever that superlative thing is, which I hate that. But I made it, baby. I got the wittiest. It wasn't the class clown, which is the there, you know, I was the wittiest one. Who wouldn't want to be the funniest? Dude, if you got to be funny, the least I could do is throw out a couple quick lines when we're at dinner. That's why my wife brings me around. When I don't show up, they ain't got nothing to talk about. She knows that. So she's got to trick me into going to dinner with all her friends all the time. And then she's like, go ahead, honey. Tell me what you were telling me. Go ahead. Say it. Say it. Say it. Say it. I love that. I love that. That is the greatest thing. You know, I want to be Mopey Sally. Be funny, Tommy. That's fun. Not funny. Oh, that sounded so bad. Be funny guy. Be funny. Any girl, funny, anybody. Funny's the best. Why not be funny? If you can be, be that. That's tight, man. Don't ever turn that off. Now, Marvelous Miss Maisel, something has to be pointed out. You like this show. You're Jewish. That has a lot to do with you liking this show. Uh, my, my wife is Jewish, so she likes it on a whole other level. We basically watch her parents on screen when she's watching it. It's a lot of Jewish people that are watching that show as what, from what I understand. It's a whole meta experience for you and why you enjoy that. I'm watching it as a stand-up comedian and as a historic, not master by any means, but a lover of the history of comedy. And they could not have gone farther from the truth on so many levels. And it just pisses me off. It feels like stand-up comics didn't even write her sets. She's just kind of up there like monologuing-ish. It's like, that's not what girls did back in the day. Girls who were famous underground comedians were filthy, dirty comedians. And they would say the craziest thing you've ever heard in your life. I mean, racist epitentials, sexist stuff. They would talk about I mean, insane things, but it was jokes. She's talking about like risque things, but it's like, they're not funny. It's the same thing with Lenny Bruce, unfortunately. They really got that character incorrect. That man was addicted to heroin the majority of his life and smoking weed nonstop. Like he's one of my favorite drug addicts of all time. Most of my heroes are drug addicts. I love that dude. And I know way too much about him to sit back and watch that piss poor impression of him. I was so upset with it. All you have to do is look up Lenny Bruce. Go on YouTube. You will hear him drop the N-bomb so much during his set. And the reason for it is because he's calling out that society shouldn't be doing it. And he's one of the greatest Jewish comedians of all time. They don't play into that as much. His mom, one of the greatest comedic influences of all time. 
when Lenny Bruce died, his mom would come out and be like, I wrote half of his jokes. If you wanted to do a topic about a famous comedic writer, there is one for you right there that could be influencing the main character. There's just so much historical comedic stuff that they got incorrect that I'm watching it kind of angrily. But as far as the writing off the stage, it's really funny. I love all the relationships she has with all the random guys. I love her going into the, the military. I love that thing because that's a real thing that comics do. And they were just like not trying to hear her fuss and huss. And I, I, I just thought the whole thing was great, man. Off the stage, the show is funny. On the stage, it kind of, I'm like, bro, there's a lot of female writers in this city right now that I'm living in that they could hire for that show that would write, I mean, amazing jokes, dude. I go to the comedy store. It is a gangster's row of female comics that would blow your mind. And if you dare specify them as like a female comic, like, dude, they'll punch you in the throat, dude. They'll punch you in the throat. They're dogs and animals just like the rest of us. They're filthy laugh machines. Well, thank you for that clarification. It's like, I, I wouldn't Sorry. know that. You know, I yeah. wouldn't know. I just, I really wouldn't know that. I appreciate that because, you know, I'm not, I'm not familiar, but well, I- my, I, my wife says that I ruin the show for her now. So she's like, you're, you're such an asshole. You ruin everything. You just sit there and you just tear it apart with your little rage bomb. And then I can't enjoy anything. That's our life. But you know what? It's a really positive thing that she still thinks you're funny. She doesn't at this point, man. Like I'll pitch her jokes and she'll be like, I'll be like, is that funny? She's like, no, it'll, it'll never work. I'm like, what the fuck? Yeah, I, you know, how do you know? And then I take it up and it works. And I'm like, you don't know nothing, all right? She's helping keep you grounded. That's what she's doing. Yeah, and she's just sick of my act. She's sick of like my cadences. She knows when it's coming. She gives me weird advice. She's like, yeah, you should go more passionate in the first one and then dumb it down here and then go there. She's more tactful about it at this point. Maybe you should uh, throw her up on the stage once in a while just so she knows what it's like. She is one of the most beautiful singers on the planet. She plays guitar. She's a great singer-songwriter, but her biggest talent is her voice. I'll tell you a story. I was doing a show, and I went up. We did our thing. It was a smaller crowd. It was at a bar. It was a, <laughs> it was a bad gig. And afterwards, they said that they were going to do karaoke and stuff like that. So the host went up there. Me and the other guys in the show, it was me and two other dudes. I was middling. I was in the middle. There was a headliner and a host. My boy, Sean Finnerty, the guy that was on Jimmy Fallon, he was actually hosting that night. My buddy, uh, James, Jan, the headliner, my comedy dad, he went up, did, we did the thing, had a good show or whatever. People came up to us and, you know, in a line, they're like, oh man, you guys are so good. My wife starts singing Somebody to Love by uh, uh, Queen. And like, literally, the line of people went from like talking to us to turning around to sitting down to watching her. And my buddy, Sean, turns to me and goes, how does it feel to be the least talented one in the relationship, huh? And like, dude, that, it, she is an amazing talent. She knows what what it is to be up on stage. So I'm blessed with her. She's my one of my favorite parts about life. And that changes my viewpoint about how I am selfish about things. Like I trudge through stuff more than I would normally because I know like she believes in me. So that like motivates me to be funnier than I am because I know how much she believes in me. So being in a good relationship, it happens. And the reason I like saying that is because most people like they're on Tinder and they're doing that crap. It's like I, I got lucky for sure. We met each other in person and we vibed. However, I think good relationships relationships are out there. I think they really are. People just don't hear about them as much because of Kim Kardashian. I agree. I agree. Now, can you talk just a little bit about the onstage and the offstage persona? A oh, bit? yeah. I don't personally do that because of how much podcasting I do and how much other... I, if, if there's a persona that I do, it's acting. When I'm acting, I, I'm pretending like I'm an actor. All I'm doing when I'm acting is like waiting for the other guy to stop talking and then I get to say my line. I am not a good actor. I've worked with actors, like I'll be sitting there and we'll be in a scene or whatever and they'll be talking to me and I'll just answer them like a normal person. They'll be like, so do you want to get coffee later? I'm like, yeah, I mean, we can do that. I don't know, get a beer or something like that. Like, Cut, what are you doing, bro? Say the line, come on. Dude. I'm like, oh, my bad, I was, in the, I was in the scene, dude. 
as far as comedy goes, there are guys like your Andrew Dice Clays, right? This is a crazy story. I don't know if you know this or not, but he started off as an impressionist. And Andrew Dice Clay was a part of his impression catalog. He was like a uh, souped up version of uh, Disco Guido guy or whatever. And basically it became like the highlight of his act. So eventually it became his whole act. And then eventually it became him off stage. And now he is just Andrew Dice Clay. And that's not his legal name. And he got it changed legally to Andrew Dice Clay. And I've seen him live, by the way. I saw him at the comedy store. I've seen videos of him like in hundreds of thousands. Seeing him beat up 50 people in a room, like a tiny little box room at the comedy store is unbelievable. He is so funny, man. It's unbelievable. Andrew Dice Clay. So that is an example of someone who can never turn off the persona. You're Carlos Mancias, the guy who like, he's not Mexican. He lied to everybody and said he was Mexican and was just like, all right, I'm, I'm the best Mexican comic ever. And he wasn't Mexican. He was like half German and Ecuadorian or something like that. Like he just lied and made up. Carlos Mencia is not his legal name. That's another example. There's a lot of people who do that. I don't like that. I like the guys, the Jerry Seinfelds. Those are my gods. They are who they are and they always are that guy. You watch a video of Jerry Seinfeld just talking to somebody, he is exactly who he is on and off stage. And what I like to do is marry the, the worlds. Like what I said earlier, it's just like a turned up version of who you are. That's all it is. It's like I'm an angrier version of that and or like a more intensified version of me. But dude, if you see how I'm talking and you saw my act, you'd be like, Okay, yeah, that's Tommy. That's definitely him. You wouldn't be like, bro, you're completely different. Not at all. You'd be like, oh, man, that was a pretty good set. That's it. You wouldn't be shocked or surprised by any means. I think that's a better way to go. Right. Does that answer well, it? Yeah, totally answers that. Some comics are really just caricatures. They're not who we think they are. Their goal is to make people laugh any possible way that they possibly can. I mean, at the end of the day, I think we all try to do that. Right. You mentioned about Andrew Dice Clay beating up a, a room of 50 people. I don't think Not I physically. No, I know. <laughs> How do you manage both internally and externally hecklers? When I started like slowly getting rep in Orlando, where like I was working enough and a couple guys were looking to me for advice, which is a horrible idea. I had no idea. And I would tell them that. I'd be like, bro, I don't, I don't know anything. I'm getting my advice from somebody else. Like I, I could tell you what they're telling me, but I don't, I don't know. They would see me yell at somebody and then they, I saw them like adopt that. Like, oh, that's how you're supposed to handle it. It's not. That's how I handle it because when I yell, I'm funny for whatever reason. People laugh at my anger as if they were watching a child have a temper tantrum. They don't laugh at me like I'm a big scary monster coming to beat them up. And when guys would snap too quick, because you got to like let it happen naturally too. Like I can't give you one answer for a heckler because every situation Guys who have lines, they're doing it wrong. Every situation calls for something else. Everybody came to see a show. Nobody paid to see that talk. Unless Eddie Murphy's hiding in the, in the room somewhere, nobody paid to hear that talk. Which, you know, maybe that happens. I don't know. Maybe Norm McDonald's just, you know, yelling great heckles from the... If I was getting heckled by Norm McDonald, dude, my show, I would die up there. A horrible death. Norm McDonald would come up, grab the mic, and show me what was up, dude. For sure, for sure. But that never happens. That ass ruining the show for everybody and everybody's on that same page so it's real easy to kind of let him hang himself a little bit let him run his mouth to the point where he annoys some people next to him people will give you that face of like bro do you hear this guy 
you could start to connect with a couple people feeling that vibe. Then you start to turn the engine on, drop something, interact with them, give them the benefit of the doubt. Maybe they didn't realize how loud and drunk and annoying they are. And then you got to let, I mean, it depends on the size of the room. If it's an open mic, do you want to give this guy the power to destroy the momentum that you're building up? Long-winded answer. I go for the throat, kick them in the face, and I never kick anybody out. They got to leave on their own. So I'll keep hammering until I need to stop, basically. Got it. I've seen videos online before. What's yeah. his name? Those are famous. Hofstetter, I think his name is. Steve Hofstetter. It's like, that's... It's almost like his thing. Okay, you don't want to talk about him. We won't. No, I'll him. talk about it. I'll talk about it. I just don't want... He's like one of those guys that listens to every podcast ever and is like, oh, you're talking okay bro it's like i don't that's his thing it's what you just said and i agree with you i feel like that's the only thing that i know about him and it's his thing to the point where like i don't know if you've seen it but he has like a sign on the stage that he has his number at and he's like talk to me or whatever and he has this time in his set where he and i don't know if people know this or not but like that's what you're watching those are the videos you're watching he asks people to talk to him and then they do and then he responds so it's like a part of his act i'm not hating on it but he's not revealing that part <laughs> that it's a part of his act it's it seems like these people are genuinely mad and yelling things out in the middle of a show like he's saying something really controversial and then the argument happens which is how most heckling starts it's like you say something that they don't agree with and then you guys get in a uh the way that i because people t like to ask about heckling and i don't discourage it but the way that I would discourage it is by talking to them and realizing that this isn't a TV show and you're talking to an act right now. And if you're really going to have a wits game with a professional comedian, you're walking down a weird road right now. You're a little drunk. Are you sure you want to do this? And then they go, yeah, I want to do this. It's like, all right, bro, here we go. That's a heckle to me. When you're asking them to talk loudly, that's not a heckle. So that's probably my biggest. It's a staged heckle. It is a staged heckle. I had this bit about an alligator. You remember that alligator that ate that kid in Disney in Florida? You remember that? Are you a dad? Yes. Okay. All right. Well, I'm not, I'm not going to tell all the joke then. So a big part of the joke for me was this guy's an idiot for letting his kid play next to a lake. I don't care where you're at at 9 p.m. at night. It's like a two-year-old who's really at fault here was a part of the joke. Anyways, I'm in the meat and potatoes of it. At the end, I compare the kids to my dogs and stuff like that. And it's a whole thing. I'm getting laughs, but I noticed dead front and center, this old lady is just like shaking her head, shaking her head. I said, all right, let's move on. You guys, you guys, you guys laughed enough at that one. And then I said, obviously I don't have any kids. That got a laugh. I said, all right, I'll move on. And she goes, yes, please. Or like next or something like that. And I was, I laughed. I was like, are you serious? I was like, how old are you lady? But you're like 120 years old. This is the worst thing you've heard in your life. This is society telling you, you can't listen to something. You know what the problem is? You took one look at me and said, this idiot drug addict, 20 year old doesn't know about life. And I'm not about to sit here and let him talk to me like that. He's not funny. I know more than him. Right. And she was like, Haha, yeah. I was like, see how you're laughing right now. Shut up, you idiot. Let me do my job. And then kaboom. That is a real heckle. That is a genuine moment that happens in a live act that you have to deal with. I didn't know what I was going to say before that happened. I've never talked to an old lady like that afterwards. Side note, after I got off stage, she gave me a big hug and said, I loved your show. You're so funny. So what's life? You know what I mean? What are the rules? That's a great story. I love that story. So uh, I have just a couple more. We'll yeah, sorry, dude. We're we're going long. If you got a, if you got patients to talk to, real people to help, I, I more than understand. I have a couple questions about actual content, also, and you sort of mentioned this a little bit. Two questions on content. One is feeding off of that joke. Even have you noticed over time how has political correctness affected your choices in material? 
whether it's just, you know, your own sensitivity or other people's sensitivity or people being able to handle certain jokes. And there's no question that 30 years ago, certain things were not off limits and certain things are now. Forget about your actual personal opinions on different parts of political correctness. This is the furthest thing from a political podcast. But how has that changed your choices in content? And then you mentioned this way back early about clean shows. Maybe this is a common question, but this is something that I've discussed with people before. I'm just curious, do you think that there's a different level of talent or skill for someone to be able to be funny without, and I want to be fair, I'm not a comic, but it seems that sometimes it's a little easier to rely or depend on something that's really dirty or certain language. I can see how it could be a little bit of a crutch. It's, it's easy to use certain words or it's easy to be somewhat dirty. And do you think that there's any more skill in being able to clean it up and still be just as funny? So those two questions on the content. Okay, I'm going to answer the second one because I'm going to have to ask what the first one was again. So I'm going to give the example of Brian Regan for clean material. Also Jim Gaffigan, who I've seen both of them live. I got the opportunity to work with Brian Regan once. He's from Florida. Brian Regan is. Uh, he's a legendary Florida comic who like, he's not famous because he acted at anything. If you know Brian Regan, it's because you like stand-up comedy and you saw one of his specials and you think he's awesome because that guy would go around the country with two hours of material. This is not, this is a real story. He would go around the country with two hours of material and he would do the first show. And he noticed the second show really wasn't selling out like the first show was. And he would tell people, hey, look, if you come to the second show, you'll see a brand new hour that you didn't see the first time just to sell out the rest of the room. So this man was a ham comedian and it wasn't his topics that made him clean. It was the fact that he just didn't cuss. That's why people deemed him a clean comedian. And that's really all it is. He's not up there talking about sex and stuff like that, which by the way, I don't talk about sex. I just know that there's controversial stuff that I run into that I wouldn't feel comfortable saying that I'm a clean comedian because I know I'm going to get some weird looks by the end. If anything, for me, when I said that earlier, it was more about the, (laughs) talking about anxiety, the anxiety that would go behind me trying to not say the F word the whole time. I would go through a panic attack. Those guys, that's how they were raised. They're pretty comfortable like that. I bet if you talk to them off stage, they're not dropping many F-bombs either. I've seen Jim Gaffigan live. Guess what? He does cuss. So his TV tapings are, clean. However, when you see him live, he's dirty. So he's not the same comic as he is live in tape. So there are variations of that. I think guys who I know one of my closest friends, his name's Preacher Lawson. He's on, uh, he was on America's Got Talent. He's blowing up right now. He's all over the place. That dude runs a clean ship and I wouldn't feel comfortable opening up for him and his audiences. That dude does church shows literally church shows. And there's no way in hell you could get me to do that. Like it would collapse on me when I walked in. The whole thing would just, it would kill me immediately. It's like partial personal belief, but also I can't do those shows, man. I've done some of those shows like that and I've learned my lesson to never do that again. I do respect, however, anybody that does stand up to that level. If you're doing it professionally like that, bro, and not professionally, if you just get up and try it, like I, I respect you. It's a hard thing to get into. However, how you write jokes is how you you write jokes. That's like who you are. Like Bill Burr. I don't, do you, are you familiar with Bill Burr at all? He started off clean. Let that blow your mind. And then when you listen to his material, it's like, oh, well, he's not really talking about like, I'm going to F some in the and stuff like that. He's not 
his stools. He's up there telling jokes and saying the F-bomb every once in a while. Like, is that that big of a deal? No, his topics are controversial because he's talking about, you know, women's rights and he's talking about Oprah and mothers and stuff like that. And that's what gets people to freak out. So I would never consider Bill Burr a clean comedian, but I think if he had to, he could work clean. However, if a clean comedian just started dropping F-bombs out of nowhere, I think they could do that too. I think Jim Gaffigan's a good example of it. So I think it makes you a better comedian to answer your question if you're able to go clean and dirty. I'm not able to go clean. I'd have to prepare myself pretty heavily to do it. Somebody called me today and was like, hey, can you come in and do a, a hour clean show? I'm like, nah, dude. Call. I know, I, I know a guy. I'll give you his number, but nah, man. Okay. Fair enough. Yeah. Some of it is just, you know, how you grew up and what you're used to. I guess it could be more challenging if that's what you're used to. Yeah, I don't like sex jokes personally. I don't I don't have any sex jokes or anything like that related in there, but I'm not going to not drop some moderate political or social ignorant statements because I think it's funny as hell to say it because it is funny. And if people are going to get mad because they're mostly Republican, which is the real problem, I'll do some red states or some blue states. And it's funny because like different jokes piss off different people in different states because some jokes like they'll cheer and then the next joke they're like, hey, we didn't like that one, Tommy. What are you trying to say, buddy? It's We didn't like your your accent that you did on that one. That's where I get my rocks off of. And there's no way you can consider that clean. I can't go to a church and start doing political They'll look at me sideways, man. Half of them are Trump voters. You know what I'm saying? And the other half, like, don't want to admit it. So it's all, it's a cluster of it. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with being a Trump voter. I don't participate in our current political climate. Jesus, take a look at it. It's a show. And it's all, it's it's giving me stuff to talk about it. So let's keep the show going until I die. And then when I'm done, I ain't got no kids. Do it up. Let's go. You're, you're grateful for, for the world crumbling around us. I'm moderately grateful for the world crumbling because I was a little worried at the end of Obama because I thought we were in this like time of peace where tranquility and everyone just kind of got along. I was like, dude, there's not enough to talk about. I'm hoping if Hillary gets voted in, then we're all, you know, it's like women are, fight. you know, it's like, all right, man, we need some, we need a bomb to go off in this country. And Trump has been that missile and it was hilarious. I mean, 2020 has given you enough material for a decade. You know, it's hard to write right now, to be honest with you. Uh, I've written stuff, but I don't know if it's funny yet. That's the hardest part because you're not getting that immediate reward of writing it. I have some stuff, but it's, it's so not the same, man. When you're doing it live all the time, it reinvigorates you. I got a lot of material. I'm hoping it ends up coming out and being something. So, and so you sort of touched on the second part of the question of, have you seen a change in because society has changed over time and there's a certain level of values or opinions or political correctness, agree with it or not, does that impact and influence content at all? Not for most. I think guys like Kevin Hart, who have so many people responsible for him, I've recorded videos with his uh, LOL network. I've recorded some sketches and stuff like that. Buddy JB Ball works directly for him. My buddy JB is also a writer for the show Ridiculousness on uh, MTV. They are under him and he's just one of like a bunch of people that Kevin Hart is solely responsible for and kind of like keeping his persona going is important for him 100%. But there's a lot of people that aren't like that. They don't have a giant umbrella of people that they need to take care of. And most comics don't give a and will say whatever the hell they want to say. And it gets them off when you start going after them. And because of guys like Dave Chappelle, who are out there dying for our sins, he's saying way worse 
that I could ever say on a way bigger platform than I could ever say. Nobody's showing up to shows like mine, pulling out a cell phone and trying to record to catch me to do something bad. They're pulling out their cell phone to record me to do a particular, like I, if I do something, half I notice it. Like half, I'll, I'll do an act out or something like that and halfway to my act, a couple people start pulling out their cell phones to record a little bit to show their friends. They want to Snapchat it or whatever. I don't have a problem with that. That doesn't bother me. You know, I, I, I don't care about, I wish people would turn off their cell phones before they walked into a movie theater or a live show of any experience. I think it's stupid for them to do that. However, the PC culture that we're in as far as the language control, dude, I think it's way less people than we realize. It's just a handful of folks that aren't getting jokes and don't belong in stand-up comedy clubs because if you're there for the live show, you went there, you saw the sign out front, it says comedy. <laughs> you know what you're signing up for. These are jokes. They're not a political belief or social statement. It's what this joker thinks is funny. Does that mean that, that there is no line? I, there's, well, not for me. Like, I'm, I'm, I just can't speak for everybody else. I'm trying to package it all into a good general answer. It's hard because not for me. And I have nothing to give a shit about. Now, would I go up on stage and drop N-bombs or F-bombs in the terms of homosexuality? Like, I mean, I don't care about saying f but like, am I going to go up there with discriminatory words that people now view as harmful? No, dude, because I don't want to hurt people. That's not my job. I'm not gonna, now a black guy could go up there and say the N word and make a joke out of the N word and talk about it. Dave Chappelle does great jokes on it. Like I can't do that. And nor do I find any way that I could make that funny. So why would I? I've seen Tom Segura go up there and say retard and then die, like totally tear down that word and like bring childhood stuff into it. I'm not skilled enough. Those guys are joke craftsmen beyond me. They've been at it longer. Like I'm not talking a little bit longer. I'm talking like 15 years longer. Jerry Seinfeld's been at it like longer than I've been alive. Jerry Seinfeld's done stand-up comedy and you'll never see him say the N word on stage. And it's not because of PC. It's because he doesn't know how to make that word funny. And that's generally what most comics do. Now, if a guy's trying to be edgy and he's just saying some hardcore that he doesn't believe in on stage, even remotely, and he's just saying it to be insane, it's like, I, I mean, I guess that's being cut back, but I don't think that really flew to begin with. Most guys operate within the guidelines. Now, there's a couple transgender stuff that gets bucked for a, a taste. It's more the offstage stuff that I've seen comics go down for like their personal lives. They'll do something horrible or not horrible and then they'll get, their whole careers are smashed for it. It's rarely their onstage performance ruin a career. The one that comes to mind, speaking of Seinfeld. Kramer? Yep. Kramer did, is not a stand-up comedian. He, wasn't, he was barely an improv actor. We're talking about cutting your grit in stand-up. I don't want to get lost in the whole thing here, but the best part about starting off when nobody knows you is that nobody knows you. So you can suck balls. When you go in front of a, by the way, a African-American audience, if you don't know, it is one of the hardest crowds you could ever go up against in your entire life. Live at the Apollo. Side note, yes. Side note, I love going up in front of African-American audiences because that northern tip of Florida up into uh, Atlanta, up into Georgia, oh my God, dude, those shows. I was the only white guy in the crowd, baby. And I wasn't in the crowd. I was up on stage. And they immediately, you feel everybody looking at you like, all right, white boy, make us laugh. Like immediately you feel that. I'm telling you, it's terrifying. However, nobody knows me. So I could use that to my advantage. And I'm, I'm, I'm funny. I actually had an act. Kramer, who didn't have an act, hadn't been doing stand-up comedy since no one knew him. I mean, I kind of like this stuff when people look at stand-up comedy like, oh, I could do it. Uh, okay, okay, go try it.
I hope it works. I'm rooting for you, buddy. And that's what happened. Dave Chappelle had the best take on it, hands down. This is why he's the Jesus Christ. This man, he did a joke on the same stage that that happened on out here in LA. It's uh, the Laugh Factory. Big sign behind it. Hilarious. Dave Chappelle was like, I don't know if you guys remember, Kramer was here and told the whole story or whatever. And he's like, when I saw that video, I'm I'm, I'm not going to butcher his joke. I'm just going to say what he said, that punch. He said, when I watched the video, I learned something about myself that I might be black, but I'm more of a comedian than I am black because I was watching his set and I was just going, damn, that mother is bombing right now. And like that is, and he didn't say mother he said the N word. And that's what really makes that joke funny in my opinion, which again is like, is that dirty or not dirty? Would that joke be the same? He knows it's better with the N word right there because he's calling them the same thing that he was yelling out in the audience. And it's like full circle, full meta, great joke, good pullback and all that stuff. And it's true. I don't look at Kramer as a racist. I, I mean, kind of now forever, right? He is a racist for sure. But I more was watching it like, yeah, dude, that happens. And you got to keep your head on and you better not say the N word. Now, if he wasn't Kramer, I bet that video would have went nowhere. I mean, maybe it was be famous for a little bit, but it's because it was Kramer. It's the fame that he had behind him before he went up on stage that really f***ed him in the Otherwise, it wouldn't, have, it wouldn't have been that big of a deal because comics are insane. And I've seen dudes whip out their on stage, bro, like in the middle of their act because they're bobbing and they're like, here you go, bam, they whip out their People are like, oh my God, what the hell? And then people run out and and they start chasing people around the audience. I've seen that, bro. I've seen that. And I'm not talking, I've seen it at an improv. I ha- I'm not talking about like a bowling alley show. I'm t- in an improv, a dude did that. It's hilarious. And I was laughing my ass off, by the way. It's one of the funniest things I've ever seen in my life. So that happens. So it's not impossible for a comedian to be doing insane stuff. Now, is Kramer racist? Yes. Okay. But he lost his cool and his racism came out because, you know, that happens. <laughs> it shows who you really are, I guess. I don't know, but. Wow. Um, yeah, no, he deserved his career to be ruined. I don't think uh, some guys can get away with being racist in this gig for a little bit, but not for a, not for a long time. Well, I don't know, because Patrice O'Neill says that we're all racist. So what do I know? <laughs> and, you know, so it's like, you know, if you have to be cognizant of your, you know, who you are. So like you said, like Kevin Hart, he has a brand and he has an image and he's got to do a dance. He wants to keep that image. And I guess Kramer didn't didn't keep to that. And no, that, Kramer, he didn't know there was a tape. That was what that was really what it was. He didn't know he was being filmed. If he knew that a camera was on, there's no way in hell it would have happened. It's because of cell phone. You better not say some fly shit, man, because it can get out there. That kind of stuff can ruin your career. But like before you get to that level where you're doing sold out shows like that, which it wasn't, but he just had people in the balcony. If you're doing a gig like that, you have to have an ammunition of stuff to reach back into to pull yourself out. I I got told this early on. There's three reasons that you're bombing. It's you, it's them, or it's the room. Find out the reason and call it out. And that night it was Kramer and he should have just called it out. He'd have been like, damn, I was way funnier on Seinfeld. I am not, why am I not funny right now? And then they would have laughed. They would have 100% laughed. Instead, he blamed them and it wasn't their fault. They let him know that too immediately. It was hilarious. I really like that because I think there's real life application to that. So often, if we would just own it, we would be able to move past it so much quicker. Just own it. Own it's it. Take, the, take responsibility. This is what's happening. And then people are able to move on so much quicker. That's the benefit of psychedelics, in my opinion, when it comes in terms of comedy, is that like you're able to just kind of in a very relaxed manner go, yeah, I really messed up. But hey, that's okay, right? Yeah, that is okay. That happens in life. That's okay. Everybody messes up. Yeah, wow. If you don't have someone telling you that at some point, a good mom telling you that at some point, you know, you kind of messes you up. You need a little bit of love every once in a while and just be like, hey, everybody's an idiot. It's okay. The Northern Florida crowds, you reminded me of this Chris Rock movie from like, I don't know, must be the 90s, something heaven, something, I don't know, it wasn't a particularly like good movie. 
he, he like, went up to heaven and then came back as a white guy yeah 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 and then he was going to like live at the apollo and he was like this middle-aged white guy you know <laughs> doing comedy in live at the apollo it was just like the visuals is funny that reminded me of that anyway tommy this has been awesome i'm sure everyone had enjoyed this and if you did enjoy this listening to this uh podcast please do support us by subscribing sharing reviewing rating all that good stuff and tommy how could people find you if they want to connect with you very easy you just got to go to my website tommyoneal.net all my stuff's there uh you could follow me on any social media outlet that you mess with all my uh newest sketch videos and stuff like that that i'm in i post them on there all my newest podcasts that i participate in i post it on there so I, i try to make it as easy as possible right there on the homepage. awesome Awesome. Tommy, Tommy's a funny guy. Thank you, Tommy. I appreciate this. It's a good mix of entertainment. And also, I think there's a lot of good, meaningful stuff in there. So thank you for being here. Cool, man. Thanks for having me. I appreciate the free, uh, the free therapy, man.